How's everybody doing tonight? Doing okay? Now, I trust the link that I gave you last week. You brought your paper back as I told you to, right? Good. Good. Uh, you what? Now, somebody last week wanted the one from the week before. Was that you? Okay. 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 That was. Well, I mean, I didn't. I I haven't brought double copies every week. Okay. I do have. Okay. There's there's one more of that. This is the one from last week that people, somebody, there was one person wanted one from last week. Okay. Okay, that's it. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Now, if somebody wants to step in the copy room, this is last week's that I gave the lengthy one I gave out. If somebody needs this from last week, I'll need somebody to step over to the copy room and make make copies. It's in that, huh? It's the dealing with the uh, both the inerrancy of Scripture and the canon. It's the lengthy one I gave you last week. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, yes. Okay, he's gone to, he's gone to make them. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not making double. If I need to make double copies, let me know because as much paper as it is, I'm, I'm bringing a few extras each week. Those get gone. And then when we come the next week, those I gave you the previous week, I don't have the same number that I just gave out from the previous week. So if, if you need that, email me during the week and I'll email you a scanned copy. Um, I'm just trying to conserve paper a little bit, not making double copies each week. <laughs> Everybody doing well? Uh, we're going to talk tonight, we're going to continue talking a little bit about Revelation, just touching briefly on general and special revelation, but tonight actually getting into issues of the canon and dealing with that handout that you did get last week, okay? Uh, I want us to watch about a 23-minute video. And then at the close of this, I will move forward with some material, again, from the handout I gave you last week. Uh, did everybody raise your, those who did not get that from last week, as he was going out the door, he got a head count on that? Okay. When he comes back in, I'll make sure he puts that in your uh, hands. And we'll have time, because you're not even going to need that for the next 25 minutes. Okay. Uh, let's let's have a word of prayer, and then we will get started with the video. Okay, Father, we thank you for your word. As we continue to talk tonight about issues related to special revelation, 
in particular that of your written word, your inspired, inerrant word. Lord, thank you that you love us enough to give us your word that we might discover how to be saved and then coming to a saving knowledge of Christ that we might have your word in order to grow in discipleship. Lord, I pray that uh, we would be ever ready to share your word with those around us who don't know Christ. Lord, may they see something different in our lives. May they hear something different in our talk. And we pray that you would use us as ambassadors for Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I have in my hand today a book, and on the side of this book, the title of the book is printed, and it says, Holy Bible. Have you ever wondered where we got the word Bible? It comes from the Greek word biblios, which is the Greek word for book. And so we are talking here about a holy book. However, if we look more carefully at the nature of the Bible, we see that though this is all bound up into one volume, in reality what we have here is not a single book, but rather a volume that includes a collection of 66 individual books. It's a library of books. And since there are so many uh, books that together comprise the sacred scripture, the first question that we encounter is, how do we know that the right books have been included in this collection or library of books that we call the sacred scripture? And that question is the question of canon. We often speak of the canon of scripture. And that word canon, again, comes from another Greek word, kanon, which is the Greek word for measuring rod or norm. And so when the Bible is called the canon of Scripture, it means that these books together are included in that volume that functions as the supreme measuring rod or the supreme norm or authority for the church. There's a Latin phrase, there's a Latin phrase for everything in theology. There's a Latin phrase that has been used frequently over the centuries to describe the Bible, and it goes something like this, that the Scripture is the norma normans et sine normativa. Now, you notice one form of the word norm appears three times in that little expression, norma normans, which means the norm of norms et sine normativa and without norm. It is the norm or the standard of all standards and it has no peer, no other norm by which it is judged. Well, when we get to this whole question of canon, 
the question we're facing here is different from what we've looked at thus far when earlier we examined the question of the nature of Scripture. We looked at questions of inspiration, of infallibility, of inerrancy, because of the brevity, brevity of the time we had to cover those. I mentioned in passing that if you want a more full treatment of the concept of inerrancy, I mentioned that we have this explanation or commentary on the Chicago summary statement of articles of affirmation and denial with respect to the concept of inerrancy. But today, we're talking not about the nature of Scripture, but rather the scope of it. That is, how far does the canon of Scripture extend? Now, there are all kinds of misconceptions that arise whenever we hear people talking about the canon. I have heard critics of the Bible say, we have 66 books included in the Bible, and that list of 66 has been narrowed down by more than 2,000 candidates for inclusion in the Scripture. And when you consider the enormous number of possible books that could have been included in the Bible, and in light of that large number, there are only 66 that actually were included in Scripture. The critic says, doesn't it seem probable, at least in terms of the odds, that some books that should have been included in the Bible were omitted, and other books that perhaps were not really qualified for inclusion made their way in. Well, I say that's a misconception for this reason. Though in a loose sense, we could say that there were over 2,000 candidates for inclusion in the Scripture, even with respect to the canon of the New Testament, the overwhelming majority of those books were quickly and easily dismissed by the early church because they were so obviously fraudulent. In the second century, with the threat of the Gnostic heresy, the Gnostic heretics themselves wrote their own little books and disseminated them widely and claimed apostolic authority for them. These books were never seriously considered for inclusion in the canon, and so it's really misleading to say that there were over 2,000 potential candidates. If you actually look at the historical selection process that the church went through with great caution and uh, careful investigation, you will see there are only two or three, three at the most, books that were ever given any real serious consideration for inclusion in the New Testament that in the final analysis were not included. And they include, among them, the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the first letter of Clement of Rome. But if you look at those documents and read them for yourselves, because we have editions uh, of those still available in the church today, one of the things that jumps off the pages as you read the material from these late first century or early second century writers, that the writers themselves were obviously 
conscious that they were sub-apostolic and post-apostolic. They themselves submit to the authority of the apostles and to their writings that came out of the first generation of Scripture. Now, these uh, books, by the way, are important and useful for us in the church and in church history. But, again, they, there was no fierce discussion or struggle about even any of these three uh, and their inclusion in the canon. More of the controversy that the church faced in the earlier centuries was not about the books that were not included so much as it were uh, as the controversies were uh, concerning books that eventually were included in the canon. And some of those controversial books about which debate went on for some time included Second uh, Peter, Jude, the Epistles of John, the Book of Revelation, and also, uh, most significantly, the Book of Hebrews. Now, another serious misconception that arises sometimes by just uh, a little bit of, uh, of sloppy uh, arithmetic I have heard scholars say, I don't know why we have such a high view of the Bible since the canon wasn't established for 500 years uh, after, uh, after Christ. Now, where does that figure of 500 years come from? Well, it comes from this date, the date 398 A.D. And that is at the very end of the 4th century. Now, if you want to round that over to 400, then you can talk about the beginning of the 5th century, and you know how we are with centuries and uh, forgetting the difference in the numbers. The beginning of the 5th century is not 500 years after Christ. But that's how the, the, the reasoning goes. The last council or synod that the church had to finally, once and for all, settle the parameters of the scope of the New Testament canon was in 398. Now, there were several uh, earlier investigations that had been made uh, before that. So there was a process that took time, and the process wasn't complete until 398. Now, that doesn't mean that in the year 398, the first time in history the Christian church had a New Testament. No, from the very beginning, the basic books of the New Testament that we read and we observe today were in use in the life of the church, and they functioned as canon because of their apostolic authority from the very beginning. What happened in 398 and in previous meetings, such as in the Muratorian meeting, was the formalization of the books that were to be included in the canon. And the issue that provoked this process in the first place was the appearance of a heretic who gave the first formal canon. And it was the heretic Marcion. Now, and his uh, followers were called Marcionites. Now, not Martians that come from outer space, but the heretic Marcion 
was one who, being influenced by Gnosticism, believed that the God who is portrayed in the Old Testament is not the ultimate God of the universe, but was rather a lesser deity, kind of a demi-urge, who had a nasty disposition, who was fierce and angry and kind of mean. And that God was the one who created so many, so many problems for us. And what Christ came to do in the New Testament was to reveal the true God and to deliver us from this mean-spirited deity. And so anything in the New Testament that would link Christ in a positive way to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, was expurgated by Marcion. And so, like the the gospel of Matthew and and, uh, much of the other gospel information was cut up with scissors and paste. Any reference that Christ would make to God as his father was excluded. And he also eliminated some of Paul's writings and gave us a very small, abridged version of what we now call the New Testament. So it's the church's response to that heresy that made it necessary for the church to give a, an authoritative, formal list of actual biblical books. Now, one of the things that trouble people from time to time is that there was a historical selection process. That we cannot deny. And that there were times in church history where books like the book of Hebrews was questioned with respect to its, uh, its authority. Now, at the time that the church was engaged in this selecting process, a threefold test was used in order to determine canonical authenticity. In other words, there were benchmarks that were applied to contenders. And the first <coughs> mark or test that would verify a book's uh, authority for the canon was its apostolic origin. Now, this apostolic origin criterion had actually two dimensions to it. To be of apostolic origin meant either, one, that it was written by an apostle, or two, written under the direct and immediate sanction of an apostle. Let me give a couple of examples of that. Uh, The book of Romans was not in question because everybody granted that it was written by the apostle Paul and carried with it apostolic authority. And the gospel of Matthew was certainly not questioned, nor the gospel of John, because these gospels were written by the disciples who became apostles of Jesus. But what about the gospel of Luke and the gospel of Mark? Luke was not an apostle, and neither was Mark. However, Luke was an associate of the apostle Paul, went with him on his missionary journeys, and had the apostolic authority of Paul sanctioning his literary output. Likewise, Mark was seen as the spokesman for the apostle Peter, so that the authority of Peter stood behind 
the Gospel of Mark as the authority of Paul stood behind the Gospel of Luke. So from the very beginning, there wasn't any doubt about the apostolic authority and biblical canonicity of the four Gospels, of the basic corpus of Paul's writings, and so on. Now, the second criterion that was used was reception by the primitive church. We take, for example, the epistle to the Galatians in the New Testament. The assumption is that the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians was not intended simply for one congregation, but had a broader uh, audience in view and was written as a circular letter to be circulated to the churches in the Galatian region. But not only was that true of the Galatian epistle, but we also know that, that the epistles of Paul and that the gospel writings were widely circulated among the first century congregations and churches that had been established. And so as a matter of historical reconnaissance, the church in looking back in the second and third and fourth centuries would say, well, we know that this particular book was received and uh, quoted as authoritative very early on. Remember, I mentioned a few of these extra-canonical books like the letter of Clement, where Clement cites, for example, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And you see the authoritative citation of books that had been received by the uh, primitive Christian community as authoritative. Even in the Bible itself, Peter makes mention of Paul's letters as being concluded among the category of Scripture. Now, the third principle was, uh, was where most of the controversy came in. And so I'll draw a picture of it. You have your inner core of books that were apostolic and sanctioned by apostolic things, and then you and also received by the early church. These, these are the books, uh, the basic core of the New Testament that were uh, accepted into the canon without any real controversy. And then you have what we might call a second level of books about which there was some debate. And one of the issues that was raised with respect to these books was the compatibility of the doctrine and of the teaching of these books with the core about which there was no question. Now, this is what caused and provoked some of the problems with the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews chapter 6 has often been interpreted by people as indicating that a person who has been redeemed by Christ can lose uh, his or her salvation. And that seemed to be out of sync with the rest of the teaching of the Scriptures on that subject, although that chapter may be interpreted in such a way that it's not out of sync with the rest of the Scripture. The irony here is that the thing that finally swung the debate over Hebrews was the Uh, argument that Paul was its author, and it was the belief of the church in the early centuries that Paul was the author of Hebrews that really got it in the canon. And that's ironic in as much as there are few scholars today who still would argue that Paul wrote it, but there are even fewer who would deny that it belongs 
in the New Testament canon. All right, so there has been this, uh, this sorting process. But uh, a dispute arose, of course, in the 16th century with uh, the Reformation uh, between uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants over the scope and extent of the Old Testament scriptures because of the question of the Apocrypha, that group of books that were produced in the intertestamental period. The Roman Catholic Church embraced the Apocrypha. The Reformation churches, for the most part, did not embrace the Apocrypha. And that dispute centered on the question of what was the Jewish canon that Jesus accepted and was accepted by Israel in the first century. And it's a historical debate because of this. All of the evidence from Palestine indicates that the Jewish-Palestinian canon did not include the Apocrypha, whereas there was some evidence that in Alexandria, in the library there, that was the cultural center for Hellenistic Jews, that is, Greekified or Greek-speaking Jews, did include the Apocrypha, although I might add more recent scholarship suggests that even that Alexandrian canon uh, recognized the Apocrypha only at a secondary level and not at the full level of biblical authority. But in any case, because of the dispute over the Apocrypha, the question says, well, who's right, the Catholic Church or the Protestants? And by what authority do we determine what the uh, uh, canon is? Now, the Protestant view of canon can be seen in this formula, that according to the Protestants, each book that is found in the Bible is an infallible book. But the historical process undergone by the church was a historical process that was done by a church that is not infallible. Now, we believe that it was, the church was guided providentially and assisted by the mercy of God. But, and, and I believe with every conviction I have that the church made the right decision at every point that every book that should be in the Bible is in the Bible. But I don't believe that the church was inherently infallible then or now. I mean, the church is always capable of making mistakes. And so we would have to say as Protestants that the historical process of selection was a process engaged in by an institution that's fallible. So that the collection itself is a fallible collection of infallible books. Whereas the Roman Catholic formula would say that since the church is infallible and anything that the church decides in ecumenical councils and so on is an infallible decision that the sorting process or historical selection process was uh, the rendering of an infallible church. So that for Rome, you have an infallible collection of infallible books. Well, that's the difference. The Protestants say, well, it's possible that the church made a mistake. I don't know any but he really who thinks that, Luther, of course, at one point questioned the canonicity of the book of James, and because of it, people said he didn't really believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and they confused the difference between the issue of the nature of Scripture and the issue of the scope of Scripture, 
where Luther is saying, I believe all the Bible is without error, but I don't know whether this is part of the Bible. Now, he changed his mind in his later years and became convinced that James was part of the Bible and should be canonical. But his questioning of it was part of the Reformation view that the church was fallible in the process. Whereas Rome would say, no, the church couldn't have made a mistake and therefore didn't make a mistake. Again, I would uh, commend to you further study of the historical question of the development of the canon. Let me emphasize at the conclusion that even though there was a historical search and investigation, I think the church did exactly what God wanted them to do and that we have no reason to be anything but fully assured that the right books uh, were included in the canon of sacred scripture. Okay, uh, just real quick before we get into tonight, uh, I want to just quickly review where we have been uh, looking at general and special revelation two weeks ago, general revelation. And we indicated then that because we are finite and God is infinite, that if man is to know God, God's got to take the initiative in revealing himself. Um, And first of all, we refer to general revelation, uh, sometimes also called natural revelation, not to be confused with natural theology. Natural theology is what man does with natural revelation, how he processes it, okay? I said it's general in the sense that it's general to all men. General revelation, Psalm 19 says all you got to do is go outside and look up at the heavens, right? The heavens declare the glory of God, right? And Paul speaks about general revelation in Romans 1, right? Talking about the things that we see in the created order clearly testify to us something about God's attributes and His power. So again, general revelation, it's general in the sense it's general to all men. Whether somebody has a Bible or not, they can go out and look at the stars at night and they should be able to know that there is a God. It's also general because it only gives a general amount of knowledge, a general and limited amount of knowledge. For more... We need special revelation. General revelation, in other words, is enough to condemn. Paul says in Romans 1, through general revelation alone, uh, men are without excuse. In general revelation, we know there's a God that we're accountable to. But for the plan of salvation, you need special revelation. We also said in general revelation, God reveals himself through what? Nature. That's what I've been talking about. The created order, history, and one other thing. Inner conscience. Yes. Uh, Let's see. Anything else about that? 
general revelation, we indicated, has been used by philosophers. Uh, They've used the ontological argument, which doesn't do a great deal for me. But the ontological argument says, that which a greater cannot be thought uh, cannot exist in the understanding alone. He must be there. The cosmological argument is deduced from just looking at the evidence of creation around us. The teleological argument is the design in that creation. Where there's design, there is what? A designer. And then there is the moral argument or the anthropological argument. Wherever missionaries go, they find people. Even if they're worshiping an idol, there's still this need inside. Wherever our missionaries go, uh, into even remote tribes and so forth, they're worshiping something. And in addition to that, most cultures know that there is right and wrong. Some things uh, in most cultures appear to be always wrong. Some things right, some things wrong. The anthropological argument. So philosophers have even used uh, some of these things from, from general revelation. Last week we started talking about special revelation. And I mentioned in special revelation, generally theologians will break that down into talking about two things. The written word and the living word. The written word, the Bible, the living word, the Lord Jesus. Right? And again, to know how to be saved, in general revelation, we can go outside and look and conclude. Any thinking person can say, boy, this isn't by accident. Somebody made this. But again, for the plan of salvation, you need special revelation. And we believe God's done that. He has inspired His Word. And I indicated last week that the doctrine of inspiration... The fact that Scripture is God-breathed leads naturally to the thought of what? The inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrancy meaning it's without error. We believe a perfect God is able to give us a perfect word. So inspiration leads naturally to inerrancy. Uh, we indicated last week that some have tried to say that, inspir- uh, that inerrancy only refers to matters of faith. But we don't believe this. We believe whatever the Bible speaks to. Even though the Bible is not a history book when it speaks about historical things, the Bible has been shown over and over again that it ended up being correct. When years later discoveries were made, guess what? The testimony of the Bible was right all along. Likewise, the Bible is not a science textbook. But again, it's been shown that when it speaks to things that are scientific in nature, the Bible has been shown to be correct. 
And so we believe that inspiration and inerrancy refers to anything written in the Bible. I also indicated last week that the doctrine of inerrancy does not discount phenomenological language. What's phenomenological language? Does anybody remember that from last week? The Bible can speak as we speak, or it can speak in, in approximations and, and still be correct. For instance, the Bible speaks of the sun rising. Tip, technically, we know that the sun doesn't rise. Uh, but the Bible speaks as we speak. I gave that quote last week from one of our Baptist theologians, A.H. Strong. He said, would it be preferable in the Old Testament if we should read when the revolution of the earth upon its axis caused the rays of the solar luminary to impinge horizontally upon the retina? Isaiah went out to meditate. Would you prefer the Bible saying that? Of course not. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture. It, it, it's, it's not that all inspired scripture as though some's inspired and some's not. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is inspired. It's all God breathed. We went over the, uh, the different theories of inspiration. The dictation view. That God directly dictated every word to the biblical writers. We know some parts of the Bible are a dictation. Certain things only God could have directly said. But we don't believe that the, the entire Bible is dictation view. The illumination view was the view that simply holds that the biblical writers had the Holy Spirit working on them. In such a way that their religious insight was elevated. That's an inadequate view. The encounter view is another inadequate view. Popularized by neo-Orthodox theologians like Karl Barth. That um, the Bible's just a document and you're reading parts of it. And through certain parts of it, God might speak to you through that. Uh, an inadequate view of inspiration. Uh, then the dynamic view, this view held that the Holy Spirit inspired the concepts and thoughts of the writer, but basically left the fleshing out of the words to the individual writer. But we said the best view, the view that the evangelical community has fallen back upon, would be the verbal plenary view. Verbal plenary. Verbal Meaning not just the thoughts, but even the words themselves were inspired. And then plenary, meaning full. The whole Bible. This view sees the sovereignty of God extending to the whole process. He chose biblical writers knowing full well what their education was, their vocabulary, their background, their personality, their style. And he superintended the whole process. Okay? 
So just kind of a quick flyover of what we've been over the past two weeks with general revelation and special revelation. Now, when we talk about special revelation that applies specifically to the written word, the Bible, a discussion that must follow that is the discussion related to what? The canon. In the overview, I didn't keep up. Sorry. I wasn't changing the slides. When you talk about special revelation and the written word of God, it has to bring up discussions of canon. Why do we have the Bible that we have and not some other Bible? Why do we have 66 books, not 65, not 67? Why? That's the question of canon. Uh, The word canon with C-A-N-O-N, not a cannon like the gun fired, but a measuring rod, a stick. Okay? Uh, We heard him say on this, if you're ever talking to some unbelievers, they, they might say something like, Oh, hundreds of books didn't make it into the canon. That is just simply false. As he mentioned, there's only three. The the Didache, the shepherd of Hermas, and and then also 1 Clement. That Clement wrote to the Corinthians that, that have ever been in debate. There's not hundreds of books that, that didn't show up, or even if some would claim thousands of books. That's just not factual. Now, looking tonight at this matter again, I hope you have the handout that I gave you last week, because I'm just going to follow along with that. Does everybody have that handout? You, you gave a copy, right? You made extra copies. Y'all are eating these. I'll bring, you know, I might bring 20 or 25% overage one week. Those will get gone. I might bring 10% overage the next week. All those will get gone. And I still won't have enough. So anyway, I hope, I hope everybody's got this. If you don't, please email me because I want to send you a scanned copy of this to you. I think it'll be beneficial to you. But where did the idea of an authoritative collection come from? Well, Scripture itself bears witness to such a a collection, right? The earliest collection of written words in the Bible would be what? The Ten Commandments. God giving the two tablets to Moses. Exodus 31.18 that tells us these were written by the finger of God and they were placed later in the Ark of the Covenant. And then this collection just naturally grew throughout Israel's history. Moses himself wrote additional words to to be deposited uh, also in the Ark. 
the immediate reference in Deuteronomy 31, 24 to 26 is apparently to the book of Deuteronomy itself. It says, And it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God that it may remain there as a witness against you. And then after the death of of Moses, Joshua also added to the collection of written words. Joshua 24, 26 says what? says, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Now for Joshua to have done this and in light of Deuteronomy uh, 4, 2 that, that God's word wasn't to be added to, uh, he must have been convinced that he was writing under authority from God. Later, other prophets wrote uh, in 1 Samuel 10.25, it says, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his home. And then in 1 Chronicles 29.29, it says, Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and the chronicles of Gad the seer. And then in 2 Chronicles 20.34 it says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat from first to last are written in the chronicles of Jehu the son of Hanani, or Hanani rather, which are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. 2 Chronicles 26.22 says, Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. 2 Chronicles 32, 32. I've given you all these references in your notes. says, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they're written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And then in Jeremiah 30, verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. And so what am I, what am I saying through all that? I'm saying as the Old Testament went along, what do we see? We see God commanding certain individuals to write this down and include it in the book. What's implied in that? That that God himself was adding to the scope of the canon. Until we had or have what he wanted us to have. Now, uh, if we date Haggai to 520 B.C. and Zechariah to 520 to 518 B.C. Malachi around 435 B.C. We have an idea of the approximate dates of the last Old Testament prophets. And then coinciding with that period of history are the last books of Old Testament history. Ezra. Nehemiah, 
and Esther. Ezra went to Jerusalem when? Around 458 B.C. Nehemiah was there from 445 to 433 B.C. Esther was written sometime uh, after the death of Xerxes I, also known as Ahasuerus, in 465 B.C., and, and, uh, which means that a date, a date during the reign of Artaxerxes 464 to 423 B.C. is likely. And so after about 435 B.C., there were no other additions to the Old Testament canon. After 435. Now, when we turn to Jewish literature outside of the Old Testament... We see, we see that the belief that divinely authoritative words from God had ceased is clearly attested in several strands of extra-biblical Jewish sources. For example, in 1 Maccabees, which is dated from around 100 B.C., the author writes of the defiled Altar. He says, so they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell what to do with them. And so they apparently knew of no one who could speak with authority, uh, the authority of God, as the Old Testament prophets had done. 1 Maccabees goes on to indicate that the memory of an authoritative prophet was something of the distant past. Josephus, you've heard of Josephus, right? Everybody heard of Josephus? Okay. He's the Jewish historian born somewhere around 37, 38 AD, he writes, from Artaxerxes to our own times, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. And so he apparently knew uh, of writings like the Apocrypha. I'm going to talk more about the Apocrypha in a moment. But he, along with his contemporaries, did not consider these writings on equal par with what we know as the Old Testament scriptures. Now, rabbinic literature reflects a similar conviction in its repeated statement that the Holy Spirit, in the function of inspiring new prophecies, had ceased in Israel. And so writings after about 435 B.C. were not accepted by the Jewish people in general as having equal authority with the rest of Old Testament Scripture. Now, interestingly enough, and I'm going through this fast because I'm, I'm assuming you're reading along with me, right? You have your notes, you're following along, and you go and study this in, uh, your, yourself. But in the New Testament, it's interesting that we have no record whatsoever, none, of any dispute between Jesus and the Jews over the extent of the canon. None. 
Apparently there was full agreement between Jesus and his disciples and the religious leaders and the general population that additions to the Old Testament had ceased after the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, this is also confirmed by quotations that we have in the New Testament. Jesus and the New Testament writers quote various parts of the Old Testament to over 295 times. But not once do they cite any statement from the books of the Apocrypha as having divine authority. So, what can be said about the Apocrypha? After all, Roman Catholicism includes these writings in the Catholic Bible. And I'll have more to say about that in a moment. But Protestant Bibles don't. It's interesting that those are books that were never accepted as being scripture by the Jewish people. Even Jerome, Jerome who included uh, those books in his Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, concluded around 404 A.D., he gave support for including them, but he himself said they were not to be considered as books of the canon, but only books... That, that had some purposes of, of edification in them for believers. But again, he said that they weren't scripture. The earliest Christian list of Old Testament books that exist today is by Melita, Bishop of Sardis, in A.D. 170. And I want you to listen to what he says about this. When I came to the east and reached the place where these things were preached and done and learnt accurately the books of the Old Testament, I set down the facts and sent them to you. These are their names, five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua the son of Nun, Judges, Ruth, four books of the kingdoms, two books of Chronicles, the Psalms of David, the Proverbs of Solomon and his wisdom, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, Job, the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Twelve in a single book, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Ezra. So in 170 AD, uh, Melito, the bishop of Sardis, said what the church was recognizing as the books of the Old Testament are those books that we have today in our Old Testament. He didn't list a single book in the Apocrypha. Uh, Eusebius, the church historian, also quotes the church father Origen as affirming most of the books of our present Old Testament canon, including Esther, but no book of the Apocrypha. 
And the, and the books of Maccabees are explicitly said to be outside of these canonical books. And then you have the great church father Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria. He wrote his paschal letter, his Easter letter in 367 A.D. He listed all of the books of our present New Testament canon and all of the books of our present Old Testament canon except Esther. Now why was Esther slower to be received because you never find written on the pages of Esther God I mean he's all over the book right but because you don't find his name specifically written in there the book of Esther was slower to be received but in 367 here's Athanasius a great defender of the faith listing the books of the canon that we have today So again, none of the books of the Apocrypha. Listen to what Wayne Gruden says about those books. He's quoting an Old Testament scholar, renowned Old Testament scholar E.J. Young. says, there are no marks in these books which would attest of a divine origin. Speaking of the books of the Apocrypha. Both Judith and Tobit contain historical, chronological, and geographical errors. The books justify falsehood and deception and make salvation to depend upon works of merit. Ecclesiasticus and the wisdom of Solomon inculcate a morality based upon expediency. Wisdom, the book of wisdom that is, teaches the creation of the world out of pre-existent matter. Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus teaches that the giving of alms makes atonement for sin. In Baruch, it is said that God hears the prayers of the dead. And in 1 Maccabees, there are historical And geographical errors. Now. Does anybody know. When even the Catholic church. Said we're going to stick the books. Of the Apocrypha. In the canon of scripture. Anybody know when that was? A big response they were having. To Martin Luther and other reformers. When was it? 1546, what council did they have in 1546? Council of Trent. Okay? They included these books in there. And why it's speculated? Anybody guess? In their arguments against Martin Luther, the, the books of the Apocrypha promoted justification by works of the law. Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers said we're just justified only by faith in Christ. But the Apocrypha gave justification for being justified by your own good works. It gave justification for prayers for the dead. 
so many of the points you go down the line that the Catholic Church was battling with Martin Luther over. There were places in the Apocrypha that would give them justification for some of their arguments against Martin Luther. And so after the, or at, at and after the Council of Trent in 1546, the Catholic Church included those books in the canon. Now, here is also a big difference between Catholics and Protestants when it comes to the canon of Scripture. Catholics, that they believe that the church has the authority to constitute a literary work as Scripture, while Protestants have always held that the church simply cannot make or declare a document to be Scripture. All the church can do is to affirm and recognize as Scripture what God has already caused to be written in His own words. And so the writings of the Apocrypha should not be regarded as Scripture based on the following. I've given you four criteria here. Number one, they do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority that the Old Testament writings do. Number two, they were not regarded as God's words by the Jewish people from whom they originated. Number three, they were not considered to be Scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors. And number four, they contain teachings inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Now, are there some interesting things you can read about in the Apocrypha? Sure. But do we believe that they're authoritative? No. They give us some good, interesting historical insight for some things that took place between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the so-called 400 silent years. They were anything but silent. A lot was going on. But the Apocrypha does give us some historical tidbits to understand some of what's going on during that period of time. But Christians today should have no worry that any of God's very words have been left out of the Old Testament scriptures that we need. Now, moving into the New Testament canon. I'm trying to hurry tonight because I want to move on next week with other issues of theology related to, to, uh, we need to get to God, we need to get to harmatiology, the doctrine of sin, Anthropology, man, Christology, uh, the person and work of Christ. So I, I really wanted to finish all this tonight. But anyway, Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, he considered a book's writing either a writing by an apostle or a connection to an apostle as a fundamental test of whether or not it should show up in the New Testament canon. And that would mean writers or books like Mark and Luke and James were accepted because of their association with apostles. Uh, 
a very decisive period you see in your notes there uh, for the development of, of what books were recognized in the New Testament canon took place between the years 140 and 200 A.D. Who was the church battling during that period of time? Marcion. Marcion denied all of the... He thought the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament couldn't be the same. He thought the God of the Old Testament was mean and vengeful and went in and killed people and all that. And, but Jesus is nice and kind. Uh, Bible doesn't support that. Who sent Jesus? The Father. The Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one. But see, Marcion thought the Old and New Testament testified to two different gods. And so they were battling with Marcion. Marcion didn't even accept a typical New Testament book. If there was a New Testament book such as Matthew, for instance, or Hebrews, that had lots and lots of Old Testament quotations in them, he struck those automatically. All because, because that belongs to that Old Testament God. So he was an interesting fellow. Uh, one church father called him the son of Satan. And that would probably be a pretty good description of Marcion because he was a pretty immoral fellow too. Uh, but anyway, they were battling with him during that period. And so that was a, that was a time for books being hammered out and, and which ones were being read by the churches and accepted and those not. Eusebius, the early church historian, uh, delineated several categories of books. Those that were accepted, those that were disputed, those that were rejected, and those that were heretical. Now, the accepted books include most of our present day New Testament. The disputed books... He, he said, were James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 3 John, Revelation. Books that were all eventually accepted. Again, Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, was the first church father to employ the word canon in the technical sense. And the synod of Laodicea was the first church council to employ the term to distinguish canonical writings from non-canonical writings. Uh, something else that helped the church hammer as they had different church councils. What were they doing in these early church councils for the most part? They were fighting heretics. And so what they would do is what, what books did they find were helpful to them as they combated heretics. And so that helped a book gain more widespread use. The first list of canonical books that contains the 27 books currently accepted appears in Athanasius's 39th Easter letter of 367 I mentioned uh, a moment ago. Now, this was the list of books accepted by the churches in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world. 
The first church council to list all 27 books of the New Testament was the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D. Now, this council represented the churches in both the western part of the Mediterranean world. Uh, and, And so what that means now, between Athanasius and the Council of Carthage, you have the east and the west, the divisions of the church between the east and the west. Now, you have both main divisions of the church coming together in perfect agreement as to what should be the 27 books of our New Testament. Now, I want it to be clear that the councils did not make a book authoritative. The book was considered inspired and authoritative when it was written. The councils only recognized what was already being recognized in the churches. If you hear somebody say the councils voted in what books we should have in our canon, no, they didn't. All the early church councils did was recognize the books that the churches already considered authoritative. Now, what tests were used? Number one, was the book authored or sanctioned by an apostle or a prophet? Secondly, was it widely circulated? Thirdly, was the book Christologically centered? Was it focused on Jesus Christ? Number four, was it orthodox? That is, was it faithful to the teachings of the apostles and the rest of Scripture? And fifth, did the book give internal evidence of its unique character as inspired and authoritative? Now folks, in the final analysis, let me say to you that in the end, no book was widely, no book that was widely disputed made it into the canon. And no book that was widely accepted was excluded from the canon. Well, please take this home and read it in more depth. If you didn't get a copy, please email me. This was fast tonight. I realize that. I do. So take it home. Read over it. If there are any particular questions I can answer about any one of these points, I'd be glad to entertain your question. Uh, I just I want you to see something about the process through which we have the 66 books that we have today. Some people have the idea they just one day magically fell out of the clouds and boom. Paul walked along and said, oh look, here's the Bible. Picked it up, made copies of it, and that's what we've had. That's not the way that it happened. Again, there, were, there was a process, okay? But any, and, and it's a process that evangelicals believe that God superintended over each, each step in that process. Whew! I tried to cover too much tonight, didn't I? Who, who does not have? Who does, Okay. How many do we? Wow. 
you made the, see the hands keep going. I'm telling you, I don't know what they do with them. I don't know. Somebody must be eating them or something. So, okay, put your hands up if you did not get tonight's. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Is that right? Keep them up a minute. Keep them up. Don't, don't put them down. One, two, three, four. Okay. If you 13 will stick stick behind, I'll stay behind. I'll make you a copy. That's a good point, Dean. I, let me just, that's a good point. So you don't even have to stay behind. It'll be on the church website. Thank you, Dean. Please take some time to read through that because next week when we come back together, you may have some questions. Uh, again, I, I wanted to get through this whole section tonight. Normally, I would have broken tonight's into two. But next week, I want to move on. There was a question over here. Somebody had a question. Somebody said, Pastor. Okay. Let me make a commitment to you. You come back next week, and I won't cover this volume of material next week. Okay? Okay. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, again, thank you for your word and the way your Holy Spirit has superintended over this process. And we have what you intend for us to have. And God, I thank you that those books that have been seen as spurious because of having things contrary in them to to the books of the Bible that those did not make it in. Books that would teach salvation by works or, or teach other doctrines contrary to the overall witness of Scripture. Lord, that uh, you've given wisdom and you've been providential that those are not a part of our canon of Scripture. Lord, I pray that having your word is part of your special revelation, that we would read it, that we would do more than read it, that we would study it, meditate on it, memorize it, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would live it. The Bible says if we're hearers only, We're deceiving ourselves. But thank you, God, that you've made yourself known. You're a God who speaks. And we're grateful for that. And Lord, I pray that everybody in here would have a plan whereby to read through your word. That we wouldn't just put it on the shelf to collect dust. But we would hide your word in our hearts. That we would not sin against you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. God bless you.